Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. Today we're talking with Randy Reyes of VenturePack about when and how to outsource your software development. All right. How are you doing today, Randy? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Ah, we're doing excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off by asking you, why do companies tend to outsource software development? There's a variety of reasons. The, the main reasons I would say first is companies just don't have the skill set to hire in-house and manage dev teams. So they just, they don't want to deal with that in-house. So they, they're more of a tech enabled company as opposed to a, a core technology business that's innovating in tech. So that's one reason. The second reason is sometimes you'll work with companies that just have a hard time scaling their development team. So they'll raise around the funding and they have, they were able to hire a few developers, but suddenly they need 10 more developers. And um, it's just hard to do uh, to hire quickly that many developers if you're constraining yourself to uh, you know, a few mile radius from your office. And so you start to see a lot more companies think about, okay, maybe we should outsource and how does that work and let's give it a shot. And so that's kind of either a scaling dev team problem or a or, you know, we're a tech-enabled company that either doesn't want to be own the tech or doesn't want to, like, build the tech from scratch. Or, you know, they probably want to own it, but they don't want to build it from scratch. Or they're just kind of experimenting with a new initiative and um, don't want to go through the hassle of, you know, the whole the overhead of having full-time people when they're just experimenting. Okay, that makes sense. And can we dig into that phrasing that you use there, tech-enabled company? Can you explain to me a little bit further what the difference is between a company that has technology as a core and one that is just using technology to do something? Great question. A lot of e-commerce companies, you know, like the Fab.coms, the Warby Parker, Birchbox, uh, One King's Lane, Thrillist. So these are tech-enabled companies. So Warby Parker lets you buy glasses online. They're not doing something revolutionary in technology. Uh, technology is enabling their business. What creates what their differentiating factor is their merchandising, their marketing, their uh, their branding uh, but not their their technology, right? So the ability to buy stuff online is not why Warby Parker is successful. And so they just need the product to work. Um, and then they obviously they need a lot with UX and design. But um, the technology itself is not where the value lies. Whereas a tech company, that's a tech-enabled business, right? So e-commerce companies are tech-enabled. If you look at like video conferencing, telemedicine applications, like they are leveraging technology. Okay, but the video conferencing tools they're using, they're using either an API, and it's really their the way their understanding of healthcare and how their product works and and their their brand create the, where the value lies. So that's tech enabled. Tech core is like Google. Google is revolutionizing the way we we search through their through their page rank algorithm and obviously the many more iterations and modifications they've had to their algorithm. That's a technology company because their the value of Google is in the technology. Right. So, you know, if you take out the technology from Google, uh, the innovative technology from Google, then you, you remove a lot of its value. And if you look at Warby Parker, there's not that much innovative technology. So technology that doesn't already exist. And so that's not where the value lies. So you're saying then that companies that are tending to outsource are these companies that maybe don't really need a core team of engineers the way that Google does. Yeah, 
Okay, so there, there's two ways to look at it. So the, the, definitely the companies that are more likely to outsource the, the Warby Parker's Birchbox of the world uh, because they're tech-enabled. That doesn't mean that Google doesn't outsource tech. Google does outsource tech, but Google will outsource technology that's not core to their Google search algorithm. They'll outsource like, you know, something their marketing team is doing. It's like a small, it's like a side thing for an event. You know, they might not build their whole, their own events products for like one side event they're doing in Europe. They'll probably like, you know, outsource that piece of what they're doing because it's not core to their business, right? So Google's still outsourcing tech. It's just that they're not going to outsource tech to with their core tech products. Um, so they're not going to outsource their Google algorithm. They're not going to outsource their robotics work or their Android work because, you know, Android is a technology platform um, and that's where the value lies in Android. So those are types of examples where they're less likely. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the other companies are much more likely to do it because uh, Warby Parker doesn't need to, oh, doesn't need the in-house talent comp- that knows how to create a checkout flow. Like that's a very basic thing. Yeah, yeah, that, ma- that, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. So let's say you you've decided that you want to outsource software development. Um, what should you look for in a development team um, if you're looking for one that's a good fit to work with? There's a variety of different factors. So the way we like to think about it, what we have is we have a venture-packed screen, and the screening system is one of the most important parts in choosing a team, right, is the, the, the making sure they're good, they're well-vetted. Our screening system has four major components. Okay, so the first major component is a, a review of their past clients, um, and so what are their past clients' experiences have been. The second major component is around their portfolio of work. So what have they done? And let's look at that work. Um, the third component is uh, tools uh, and uh, the tools that they they use, any open source code that they have, just kind of a general review of uh, how they think about remote work. And, uh, you know, are, are they do they understand, you know, what it means to have, you know, proper task management tools, accountability management, uh, culture uh, tools to help with, with culture, um, culture propagation across remote teams, etc. And then open source, what the open source component does, open, if they've written open source code or if they haven't, that, that helps to actually see the way they write code, which is very useful for us to see the way they style and the way they think, the way they contribute and their passion for the subject. The last piece uh, is where we do more of a deeper dive. So well, the deeper dive part is where you look at the, the, the profiles of their developers, profiles of the management team, and then there's the test. The test is usually an assignment where we'll go into, uh, where we'll look into how they respond and, and handle, uh, specific, uh, coding problems. And so you want obviously the problem to be um, doable within two hours. Um, and you want to, you, we, you do it through screen share as opposed to just in a take home assignment. Cause screen share gives us a lot more data about the developer, how they respond, how they search, how they think, how they write code. Um, and there's a lot of things with a test component, but that's kind of the way we think about quality and the general understanding of the quality of the, the developer and their understanding of remote work. So those are the main two things we do in the venture backed screen. And I think that's the, that's probably the most important part in the selection process. The second part of the selection process is you choosing the developers that you want to work with. So the people that you like, the people that you uh, have a cultural fit to you personally as into your team. And so that's the second part, which is uh, why we obviously, we introduce companies to multiple deaf firms because they might be good, but you might just not want to work with them. And you have, you know, there's a whole process of management and communication that's really important. And so those would be the two main buckets of, um, you know, the venture pack screen and then the cultural fit are the two main ways we think about selection of deaf teams.
Could you? Oh, that makes sense. Could you explain uh, when you mentioned you mentioned tools earlier? Could you explain why that's important to you and how you look at that? Sure. The biggest challenge with remote work is, as with most relationships, it's communication. And the reason why remote work only took off in the last, I would say, five to you know maybe nine, ten years, is that before that you didn't really have the tools available to communicate remotely. So. You know, you, Skype is one one tool that's allowed allowed the remote work to be much easier because you can easily get onto um, get onto a call and cheaply. Um, and then there's all the chatting tools and the various task management tools, accountability management tools. All these tools help create a much better environment for communication in a remote environment. So companies that are still using email to manage the whole the task management process and to build relationships and aren't regularly taking calls and have have a good understanding of the tools available, they're usually not fit for great, they're not building great remote engagements. And so when we ask them the questions about the tools they're using, you can tell uh, from their explanations of why they use specific tools, you can learn a lot about the company's thought process around how to manage and work with remote teams. And so it's a very, very important component of successful remote engagements. That makes sense. What I'm curious about then is do you do the same sort of uh, analysis of the companies and whether or not they have worked with anybody in the past and used remote tools? Because, you know, of course, us as consultants, part of our challenge has been getting people to work under that that notion when they've typically just had people with butts in seats, right, where they've only had people in their office working with them. And they certainly are not used to the tool set that a lot of remote teams may be used to. You're saying on the client side? Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, this is one thing that uh, is extremely important also is that there's a an attribution error or uh, an, an assumption that all problems in a development engagement are a function of the dev team. Uh, and that's usually not the case. Uh, there's obviously also the client component. And so uh, their clients come in with the expectation that we're hiring this dev team and such, and therefore they should be able to do everything perfectly and we don't have to talk to them and they should figure it all out. Uh, whereas in reality, of course, development is a much more iterative process. So if they're not communicating properly, there's going to be delays, right? Or you're, the dev team is going to have to make assumptions that fall flat or might not be perfect depending on... The client. So yeah, definitely the client needs to be involved. The client needs to understand that. And the client needs to be able to use the tools that either the dev team chooses or if the client has already existing tools, you know, the dev team can accommodate that. But the thing is that the, the, the key component and the most important part is that the client understands the importance of using these tools and using them properly, you know, so... You know, it's not great to say like, oh, I'm using a task management tool, but oh, I check it once every two weeks. That doesn't work. So the client needs to use them properly and, and the client has an understanding that's key, very important. So are there any particular tools that you'd recommend then for remote teams to use? Sure. There's a lot of tools coming up every day and there's a lot of great tools. You know, we usually bucket them from in task accountability management, then chatting, and then voice, and then uh, culture propagation. Within project management, task management, accountability management, there's just a lot of companies there. And generally speaking, like the big names are obviously Basecamp and Asana and Trello and Jira and Microsoft Project. Like those are the biggest names out there. We've seen them all. We've worked with them all. We can see the advantages, disadvantages of them. 
Asana is great because of its flexibility. Jira is great for tech. Basecamp is also great. Like those are the three ones we see most. They're used a lot. And then I would say on, uh, you know, things that are growing in some companies like just really love are Pivotal Tracker, Trello, uh, and those types of products. So Kanban is another one that some people are using. So there's just a lot of, you know, solid tools and under project management. You have to really see, you know, what are your preferences? There's a cost benefit to each one. And so depending on your specific application and your personal preferences, you're going to choose one over the other. But there's just a lot of solid tools there. Uh, the key we look for is like why they chose, you know, Trello. And if they can talk about why they chose Trello or whatever, that's, that gives us an insight into how they think about managing remote teams. So that's that part. For chatting, HipChat is one of the great one of the great chatting tools. A lot of people also like to use Hangouts. Some people even use WhatsApp. And now Slack, of course, is the one that's taking off for, uh, for chatting and real-time communication. Uh, IRC is, uh, is huge. And Skype course skype chat um is used uh, a lot so you can see a lot of variety even within chat within voice um and and just kind of calling and 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 there's a there's a lot there that's interesting so of course skype is used also for voice and hangouts are used for voice but then there are more like tailored and specialized tools like fuse like squiggle like uber conference that are also used to help with remote remote uh, engagements and the key there within calls is you know these tools help with internet calls over the internet calls over network calls on the phone calls on the ipads or tablets calls on desktops so just cross cross device and cross network versus wi-fi network versus internet uh versus like cellular like the the actual like telephone networks. So you can basically route calls no matter where you are in which country and which um, device you have and what connection you have. You can basically route calls. And so those are very convenient products there. So you're going to see also there, there's a big range of interesting voice tools. And then culture, I mean, Within culture, people do different things. Uh, Yammer is, is one tool that people use to help with that. People even use Slack to do cultural thing, uh, interactions. And then you can have groups, either like a group. Some people just use Google Groups or something to have a, to, to organize groups and do events. People use WhatsApp groups also to help with culture and to help, you know, share interesting things going on and organize dinners or, or trips or whatever. So that's the quick overview of the four main categories. That's kind of like what I, I guess the the high level, the, the four categories. Yeah, that's great, and I, I actually like that you point out that with all these productivity apps in particular, uh, the project management apps, that there are pluses and minuses to each of them. I mean, we've used in various instances with different clients Trello, Asana, Basecamp, Sprintly, even um, Pivotal yep. Tracker. I mean, we've used kind of the whole gamut, and certainly they all have their their upsides and downsides. I know Venkat has his own opinions about that. Yeah. Backing up now, I'm a client and I'm uh, looking to outsource. I'm brand new to this. You know, maybe I've got something completely new. Maybe I've got some little internal app that I'm trying to outsource. What can I best do to prepare for that first meeting with a development shop? The first part that you want to really understand is what exactly are you looking for? A lot of the times people come and it's like premature. They really don't know what they're looking for and if it's the first product. So you want to like think about okay, what are the main features I'm looking for and what are the order of priority of those features? Because, you know, we come obviously, you know, these entrepreneurs are very ambitious, which is great. But at the same time, you want to be realistic. So you don't want to come and say that you want to build like 100 features and you have a constrained budget because you're running off personal capital. So you really want to kind of 
prioritize your features. Um, very important. And, and understand what features you want uh, beyond just saying, I want Facebook. Cause obviously, because Facebook, as you know, has a lot of features. They also have over 5,000 engineers working over 10 years on the product. So to rebuild Facebook is not a trivial kind of undertaking. Um, usually it's just like they want a feed or they want a profile. And the specific aspects of the feed or profile have to be taken into consideration. So that's the first thing. You know, it's understanding the features that you're looking for and the priority of those features, so how, how, they, how they're ranked. Once you have that, a good understanding of that part, then it's about choosing a team, understanding what's unique about your product. So if, you're, if you really focus on, my, my product is a fashion app, right? Then design is going to matter for you. So you want a team that has a good design understanding, uh, maybe a company that's worked in fashion before, if you want them to help you beyond just um, implementing the product, if you want to really like work with them on it and get them to give you some pushback and guidance, that's helpful. And then, you know, there's language preferences. Like if you have a CTO or you have a mentor who's kind of guiding it and has like, you know, definitely wants a Ruby product, make sure that's incorporated from the first part of the process instead of like going through the whole process and then realizing your mentor or your CTO or whoever, whoever is helping you with, with the tech says like, I only understand this one language PHP. And if this guy's not PHP, then or, or node or, or just whatever it may be. So understand that part. So from beginning, it's like, what features do you want? Make sure you understand that prioritize them, and then what's unique about your application from an industry uh, standpoint and then from a technology standpoint. And that is going to help you find the right people, and that's going to help you uh, just direct the conversation a lot better when you meet with dev teams. Okay, so let's say I have a high-level overview of what I want to accomplish, but I've never written out how to write these features or what I should hand over to developers. Where do I go from there? I mean, how do I get from something that like developers can look at and then run with. Uh, we got this question so many times that we actually wrote an ebook on it. So uh, there's a venture fact ebook about this to address that question. But yeah, this is a great point. It's like, how do, how do we think about the features? There's a couple of ways we kind of uh, tell companies to think about this. First way is to think about like a, just a basic mock-ups with, within each, and so you kind of think about okay, how this, how would the mock-up look? And so when uh, some companies are like, okay, so what's a mock-up? So then we say, okay, think about a user flow. Okay. What's user flow? Basically, it's like, let's look at the customer journey on every aspect of the app. So the first time they log in, there's the first time they arrive, there's a sign up or whatever. And then after sign up, they log in and they're into the, they land on a feed, they land on whatever page. And then these are the main navigations that they can have. And so you draw the user flow. When you're drawing out the user flow, the first thing you have is your screen or your, if it's a mobile, the mobile screen or tablet or desktop, whatever it is, you have that screen, you have a, uh, a basic understanding of how the layout is going to look. And then you have under each page, you have a description of what features are you going to, are, are going to be incorporated into that mock-up. So sign up, you know, uh, there's going to be uh, or login, you know, so there's going to be a login page. You can see the two boxes, your username, password, the sign in button, the login button. And then under it, there's a forgot password uh, link. And that forgot password link is going to create, take you to this page, which is going to ask for email, which is then going to send an email. So, the basics, right? And you basically have that explanation under each mock-up. So that's kind of one way we explain it to people, and we guide people to do that. Not everyone is super excited about doing that on their own, but that's kind of one way. The other way is to go into a lot of detail about specific products that you like and what about them you like. So, you know, you're like, oh, I really like the checkout flow, one King's Lane. Okay, so what about that checkout flow do you like? And so you can talk about the features there. So you're not actually, you're not like drawing out your own flow. You're kind of leveraging other flows and explaining what you like about them. And so that helps provide some guidance. 
Uh, and the third thing that we do is we also have guidelines. So a company that's in e-commerce, like we can explain to them like what e-commerce companies need and what marketplace companies would need. And so there's like guidelines as to what specific features are common, right? Like it's very hard to have an e-commerce product and not have a checkout part, uh, a checkout flow, right? So you, this is not going to work uh, unless you're more, you're just a discovery engine, uh, which then is not truly e-commerce. So, you, you know, there's just things that you need that are standardized across your category. And we help with that part. So our ebook obviously goes into a lot more detail on this, but this is the guidance we try to give to people who haven't done this before. So what, what should people be using to create these mock-ups? What do they usually use? A lot of people use Balsamic. Um, that's kind of the, you know, what people, most people will try to use when they create mock-ups. Some people do it by hand or on whiteboard and they take a photo, but those are also not uh, super great. There's a lucid chart that people use for like the mapping of the flows. And then there's apps on Google Drive. Um, when you're like in Drive, there's like a bunch of apps there for mock-up tools that people use. So there's a variety of different ones. I would say My Balsamic is probably... Uh, the biggest uh, that, or the most commonly used type of mock-up tools. Who's usually responsible for creating these mock-ups? You're saying client side or dev side? Yeah, is it the client or is it the developer? Or how does that whole process work? It depends on. The, so, I mean, there's two types of engagements. There's fixed price and there's time and materials. If it's a time and material the relationship, then you don't need to do like a full mock-up the whole thing well, right at the beginning. You kind of you're doing a, the first iteration, so you do mock-up for that iteration. It's a sprint, and then you kind of iterate. If it's fixed price, then it's obviously a lot more time intensive early on. And in that case, you definitely are going to have a interactive mock-up process where at some point both sides are going to get involved. Ideally, the client has some insight into this from the beginning and then together they kind of optimize and improve it. Most of the time clients, you know, don't have time or they haven't done it before and so they really want some guidance. So the dev team will provide guidance in helping you get there. It's just that you definitely it's preferred if you've thought through the priorities of your feature beforehand. Because usually what happens is if you arrive and you haven't thought through you're after the meeting, you usually have this problem of having just too many features for your first version and it doesn't make sense to build all those out. But usually, you know, usually at the end, there is a collaborative part with, we, with the client and dev team working together to finalize that whole flow. You mentioned that clients don't typically enjoy the process of doing mock-ups from assuming, scratch assuming, themselves. Yeah, assuming, it's a, assuming it's like a first-time uh, entrepreneur. If obviously, if it's a company that's done this stuff before, they understand the importance. They'll have a project manager. They'll have someone dedicated to it who understands the scoping. and the. But if you're working with an entrepreneur who's doing it for the first time then you're going to have that. Or someone who just doesn't have experience with it, they usually don't like doing it. Someone who has experience understands the importance of it and does it because they know that it's critical. Right, but somebody who is new to it probably needs a little bit more help and guidance because they've never done it before. I mean, I I can't really blame them for that, for sure. Exactly, correct, yeah. Okay. Let's say you've worked with the dev team and you have some a list of features and you have your user flows all done. Is that enough to get an estimate of how long that would take to build? Estimation is another thing where we get a lot of questions on, and we write a lot about this too on on our blog and in our ebooks because it's one of those things that there uh, people want estimates for things that are very unclear. So um, a good analogy would be like if I told you like how much would it cost if I was to build Airbnb and you were to get throw a number out there, it would be like asking how long would it take for me to bike from San Diego 
to Sacramento or something or San Francisco, right? It's such a long bike ride. It's going to take days. There's, you know, maybe my bike breaks down on the way. Maybe I get tired. There's just so many things that can happen on such a long journey that causes error in estimation, right? And so what we'd like to think about is the more features you have, the more opportunity there is for error in estimation. And you definitely, it's much what we prefer to do is if you're, especially if you're doing like an iterative agile thing where it's going to be a lot of which most startups do, it's better to either do a time and materials engagement where you're iterating quickly and you just work every two weeks and you have sprints. That's easier because you don't have to do that whole estimation part. But the problem, of course, is that companies have budgets and they're constrained and so they want estimation and they want to be able to like say, this is how much it's going to cost. In that case, usually what happens is after this whole part at the beginning, you have, you have to really like make sure you understand what they want and the features and make sure it's clear. Then the second part is uh, the features that are assumed but not communicated or features that are forgotten but are important have to be thought of. So there's after there's the feature part, there's like, oh, have they thought about uh, an admin panel? Have they thought about, at least a few years ago, it's like, oh, they didn't say they wanted responsive, but they wanted it responsive, right? So just basic things like that that you forget what are important. So you try to do that part. Once you have the forgotten piece, you put them together and try to come up with an estimate. Usually it's just you, you know, you try to think about how many hours it's going to take and then you have an hourly rate and multiply the two together and you'll find that there's going to be error at the end and the error will increase with the length of time that the project takes usually, right? So the longer a project, the more there likely there is an error and the larger that error will be just because of the more opportunities for change requests, the more opportunities for confusion and the higher the likelihood that the original scope and uh, and feature set uh, is uh, inaccurate or it becomes outdated over time. So that's just why there's an error. But yeah, you can come up with an estimate once you have a basic estimate once you have that. So is there a risk to the client then of doing a project fixed bid like this? I mean, if you have a significantly large project? It's better to do time and materials. Yeah. I mean, I think with there's obviously like, you know, the CIO comes if people say like, I have a fixed budget for my, my CEO or whatever. So he wants, he's scared of going above it. But there is risk with, with large projects because you're ultimately inevitably going to end up with a change request. And that change request is going to, first of all, change the price usually. Second of all, what that change request is going to do is it's going to cause a lot of debate and arguments and back and forth and discussion around how you price that change request, discussion around how long that change request is going to extend timeline discussion around what that change request exactly means uh, that kind of further just delays things. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where you still in, in outsourcing software, there's already enough opportunities and enough reasons for something to not work out perfectly by adding a fixed price on a long project, you add more reasons for it not to work as planned. Right. We've never done a fixed bid project, so I can't really judge how it might have gone. But for exactly the reasons that you mentioned is why we've avoided doing it in the first place. Yeah, that's I'd... great. It's good foresight to, do, to, to <laughs> decide to do time and materials before ever doing fixed price. That's good foresight. Most people move thereafter suffering. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it honestly came from just a client protection standpoint and you know, most clients who were new to it didn't really understand like our initial logic behind it. I think we've gotten better at communicating just the way that you did. But I think it was hard for people to see, doesn't this big question mark just mean that you could end up charging me three times what it is that I want to pay? And, you know, I think once they've gotten down the path of working 
uh, with somebody who's trustworthy for a little while, that goes away. But it's certainly a, a really scary thing at first, I think, for somebody that has, you know, an idea in mind of how much they want to spend. But, you know, somebody has to admit to them that this thing is fraught with risk. And, you know, the more work that we do, the more unknown unknowns there are out there about it. Yeah. I, th I think honestly, like from my perspective, at least I would rather appreciate the person who's honest with me about that than the person that tries to cover it up by saying that it's a fixed bid and nothing will ever go wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those challenges. I mean, the other thing is obviously just like client expectations. Sometimes if they've never done it before, kind of, they kind of perceive it to be something that um, they don't understand the inner workings of how you're trying to design things from the beginning and how you architect things. And so they have this expectation that it's a small, quick thing that you can do without understanding that uh, sometimes a change that may appear to be small might be a lot bigger. And so that's that's another re reason why yeah, it's sometimes harder to educate and explain to them everything if they just there's a disconnect in how they think about software development. Right. As a client, what can I do to reduce the risk I'm exposed to around this? Uh, around around the fixed price bid or the time materials bid or uh, around just having an idea that this project may take say three months like maybe it could go over much longer than I expect what can I do to mitigate that risk the first thing definitely is prioritize your features okay so the more and and, and really prioritize them and then put like the must-haves the nice-to-haves and the things that are like, okay, the things that we think we'll need in the future, but won't need in, in, the, in the short term. So by having the must-haves and make the must-haves like actually must-haves instead of like, oh, these are all must-haves. Uh, that's the first thing you can do because then you limit the length of time that you're committing to for a project. And by limiting the length of time, especially for fixed price, by the way, you limit the potential for error, right? Because there's less features, there's less time, there's less opportunity for changes to come in. And so you just can iterate much faster. So you have short cycles. And that's the first thing. The second thing is communicate. You as a client are responsible to communicating regularly. If you do not communicate daily, if you do not respond to emails or messages or tasks or, or the, the comments on the task management tool or whatever form of communication or medium you're using, if you do not respond to them promptly, then you are setting yourself up for failure because you are forcing the dev team to either delay or make an assumption. And then you'll, or you'll complain at the end about a delay that's really a function of you not responding to questions promptly. So those are the two things you really have to do. Prioritize and communicate and really, really communicate. Otherwise, you know, you're going to point fingers at the dev team. They're going to point fingers at you. And you have this other kind of us versus them problem, which then also further delays projects, uh, etc. So you mentioned that prioritizing and responding promptly are two responsibilities of a client. Are there any other responsibilities that they should be aware of? I would say those are the two main things. I mean, there are other small things that clients can do to help address problems. They can do like a bunch of research about, about how specific features can be implemented to help guide dev teams into what they can do there. They can like review from the beginning. They can do things to ensure that if they already have existing code base and the guys coming in, they do have a good training process to get them onboarded. Um, they can do things like if it's a new product from scratch, they can do things with styling guidelines and review uh, code reviews right from the beginning instead of doing a code review like at the end of the project, which causes problems because, you know, a code review at the end of the project just means that you really can't change it. It's not productive. So doing things early on. There's like a lot of small things you can do to depending that are situation based that can help alleviate problems. 
and, and alleviate issues that can come up. But pretty much across the board, those two things I mentioned uh, are really important. The first one with features optimiz- uh, prioritization uh, is extremely important with, uh, with uh, fixed price. And there's also, you know, it actually is also important with TNM because you need to know under TNM model, you need to think about like, what are we starting off with? And so that's why prioritization also matters there. But those would be the two things I would say matter most across the board. Just to dig into prioritization a little more, we've talked uh, in the past about like the critical path. Is that sort of what you're talking about with feature prioritization, that you should focus on the the things that are really core to your application? And I mean, you said earlier, if you've got an e-commerce application and you don't have a checkout flow, then it doesn't really matter if you have like commenting on a product or something like that, if that core functionality doesn't work. Is that correct? Is that what you would say that prioritization really means? Exactly, exactly, exactly. You have companies coming up and they'll be like, oh, we have to have like this type of ad, like we need, we have these types of users. We have our customers, we have our suppliers, we have our administrators, we have our advertisers, we have our brands, we have our nonprofit partners, we have this and we have that. And it's like, wait a second, your pro, what is your product? You know, like, and at what point in time do you expect to have advertisements? Well, I think after we hit like a million people, okay, so that does not, that's not a priority, the advertisers, because you don't have a million people right now. You haven't even launched. So the advertisers are a secondary thing. Okay, uh, when are you going to partner with all these NGOs and nonprofits? Oh, okay, so that's not relevant. And when are brands going to be doing uh, native content on brands? Well, that's later. Okay, so what's the actual product? It's the customer, the supplier, and the admin. And so you start to see these things where what is core? Like what is the main value of your site, right? So for Google, the main value is search. Uh, they did not have advertisements when Google launched, right? So Google, the first thing they did was search. For Facebook, it's the connection. It's the, the main value is the ability to connect with friends and see what they have, their photos, and see like basically the the stalker or whatever you want to call it, like that human component of connection and seeing what other people are doing and seeing what other people are going on is the core value of Facebook. So they did not launch with like, yes, it would be cool if I could organize an event on Facebook. Yes, it would be cool if I could play games, um, Facebook games, or, you know, all these things are useful, but Facebook did not have partnerships with Zynga when they launched. They did not have events when they launched. It was just um, the Facebook where you could see the faces and the people in your school and you could just check them out uh, basically and kind of tailor this kind of human human behavior and human need to kind of check out what's happening and have that personal connection with people. So that's how they started. And so this is the main thing that we tell companies is that what you want to think about, what how you prioritize is based on what features without which you would not have the core value of your product, Right. So if Facebook didn't have events, you could still get the main value of Facebook. If Facebook didn't have a profile page, you could not get that value from Facebook, right? Because there would be no way for you to know who I am and to check out what I've done. And that's the core thing of Facebook. It's the profile within the profile, all the timeline stuff. And that kind of is, is the key thing, you know, the profile and the feed. Those are the two things that people come back to Facebook for primarily. So... That's how we try to urge companies to think about prioritization. It's like, what is, what feature without which you would not have your users? Right. And honestly, what's interesting to me about this is that it sounds like by you putting a price on thing and you forcing the conversation, you're actually doing what's right by the companies. You know, you're forcing them to think in this lean startup or whatever you want to call it mentality where they do have to focus on the things that matter to them and matter to their customers even more than they would if 
you know, they had all the time in the world and could build, you know, the 110,000 different features that it is that they want to build eventually. Yes. These things help ensure success in an outsourcing engagement, which, yes, you're right, helps ensure uh, success of the company itself, right? Because you don't want to spend three years building something and wasting three years of money and time when you could have launched in three months or five months or something like that. So there's a great alignment between a successful outsourcing or software engagement and successful business, uh, which kind of makes sense. So uh, that guidance helps, especially people who are doing this for the first time, better understand how to go about building their product. One metaphor we've we've started to use, and it's actually, I think, borrowed from Ryan Singer. What he talks about is you figure out what's that critical core value that you're delivering, and you're kind of building a bridge. Like they're at point A, and they want to get to point B, and you want to build the bridge or those features that will get them from A to B, and everything else is kind of secondary. Yeah, makes sense. That makes sense, right? Like, What are the features that get you from point A to point B? Uh, and what are the most relevant ones? Agreed. Let's set up a uh, thought experiment here because I've, I've seen this work with clients who have hired companies before us. Um, they've worked with a, a team that was outsourced. Often, unfortunately, it may be a team from another country. And now they feel burned because the project ended up turning out really wrong for them. Where could things have gone wrong? As you said earlier, it's not always necessarily the developer's fault. When things start going downhill, where should you start to try and uh, fix them before it ends up as a, a disaster? So when people outsource, when so within outsourcing, obviously you have local outsourcing where you're in your city, you have nationwide outsourcing where you're going with people outside of your city, but in your country, then you have near shore and offshore outsourcing where you're going outside of your country, you could go to you know South America or offshore, you could go to Europe and, and Southeast Asia. And uh, obviously, like, there are many common challenges that occur when you outsource to different time zones, first being the time zone difference. The second, of course, is a lot of times when people outsource to a country, they assume that if it didn't work out, it's a function of that country. So you outsource to Argentina, it doesn't work. It's because Argentinians are incompetent, uh, which, of course, doesn't make sense, right? You hire people all the time in the U.S. and you sometimes doesn't work out. And that doesn't mean that it's the U.S. talent that's incompetent and we should hire people outside of the U.S. It's just that the person you hired wasn't a good fit. So the first thing is making sure you're thinking of an, on an individual basis as opposed to a generalized basis where you assume that the reason why an engagement doesn't work out is a function of the entire nation's population being incompetent. Right. That's the first thing that we hear all the time. It's like, oh, I, just, I can't outsource to Mexico because my hired a Mexican person didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds ridiculous, but it's actually a very, very, very common way of thinking and it's mainly because uh which is mainly because like they just don't have that much experience working with an argentinian so they'll they'll just assume that that's their key thing they're thinking about uh whereas you have a lot of experience working with americans right so you've seen great american developers mediocre american developers and weak american developers and so you then make the problem when you hire an american developer an individual a problem of the individual as a problem to a problem of the nation uh which I, it, it does sound ridiculous, but you, you'd actually be surprised with the number of people who fall into that trap. I right. I, I mean, it happens often. And, you know, I think it's just that's an error in human logic, unfortunately, yeah. and just kind of the bias of, like you said, living in a certain place. And, you know, you have one ex bad experience with somebody and it's all too easy to generalize it to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's 100% true. But 
to get back to the core question, which was um, how do you address a problem that's uh, occurring? If there's a problem, the first thing is if you're communicating regularly, you'll find the problem a lot sooner than if you're not communicating regularly. So that's the first part. The second part is figure out what is the root cause of the problem. So the root cause of the problem is a usually the, the most common one is just like a misunderstanding. So you tell me build a profile page and I think that a profile page is just a name and an image and you think that a profile page, you know, has a photos product, has a full timeline product, a f- like and a bunch of other things. So you can quickly see how that difference between the communication problem and that's just that's something that needs can be addressed. If the problem is a, um, a time zone difference, meaning that you just can't schedule calls because you know they're so far ahead, then one person has to sacrifice or they both have to compromise a bit on timing. Uh, if they're not able to do calls and that's causing delays in, in, in them getting started on a specific new feature, that's also a communication problem actually at the end of the day because it's just you can't schedule calls. Uh, it might mean that you should go with someone in a different time zone if it really just can't work. If you're just inflexible or they're inflexible or you either go with someone else in that time zone who's more flexible or you go with someone outside of that. Uh, but you want to try to figure these things out early by communicating regularly. The other types of problems are ones that really like, you're going to have to think about changing much earlier on. So it's like they really are – you did a bad job screening them and there's a technical – like you remember how venture-packed screen was technical skill uh, assessment and then remote work understanding? So – if, you know, those are two things that could be big problems. Like if they have no understanding of remote work, that's going to be a problem, especially if you as a client are not very experienced in remote work. So then that's going to cause a, a, an issue. And then obviously, like if their technical skills are just not there. So if you want to build a tool that requires some specific skill that they don't have or that they're just not writing, if you have a deaf team and they're augmenting your team or whatever it may be, if there's just like a incompatibility in the way they write code or the way they uh, think about things that you just feel like, this is really hopeless and this is not going to work out. So doing code reviews early on helps a lot with that, uh, especially if you have technical skills. It's like, okay, where, where exactly is the problem happening? Can we guide them and give them proper, you know, the, the one thing we always say is that if you do code reviews early on and you have your mentor or your tech team or whoever whoever's engaging with them, ensure that they're writing code in the way that you would like if you have a preference. Okay, some com- entrepreneurs have no preference because they don't understand what's going on, but if they do have a preference, you want to make sure that's communicated and you review it early on and so you can uh, improve it. So that would be with technical skills and just technical know-how. Can they execute on it? and Are they able to move as fast as you want? Suppose you're not technical. Um, is there anything you can do in that case? Well, if you're not technical, uh, some, most companies will just have a mentor or someone they, they, that kind of just goes over it. You know, if you, have a men- if you have a mentor, if you have a potential future CTO that you have in mind, uh, having them at least more, someone involved early on is helpful. Um, we've seen a lot of times entrepreneurs who have a potential CTO that can join if they raise funding or whatever, who ends up joining and they find out, oh, he just does Ruby or, and this is a PHP or Node.js product and this guy doesn't want to work with that. Or that he has a specific preference around styling and guidelines and how this code should be written and they didn't follow that or they used a different process or a different type of And you know, there's many right paths, right? So it's not that we, that CTO is right and that dev team is wrong, right? It's like... If you're building a bridge from A to B, as you mentioned, there are different types of bridges that can be built with different materials and different shapes, and they can have different paths, but they still get you from A to B. And so you're going to have a point of personal preference that's going to create that variety. So that's another thing that you're going to see is where everyone assumes that their path is the best. There are some things that are clearly better or clearly uh, you know, optimal, right? 
Um, and there's some things that are debatable and arguable around what is better. It's kind of like, you know, my, I have a different taste than you do. So you could say like a restaurant, it's not, it doesn't mean that you're wrong if I don't like it. It just means you have different tastes. In any case, that's one thing that we would recommend is like having a mentor, having someone to, to oversee that. And otherwise, you know, if you're doing a small, if you don't have that, if you're doing a small project, you know, have clear things in mind and communicate to them what you're really looking for. So, you know, we want this type of, you know, it's a fashion product. We want really great design. We want these are the main things that we need to be able to work. These are the main features. Let's come up with a timeline when these need to be executed on. Agree to the timeline on both sides. And then you want to be able to just kind of keep communicating and seeing how progress is coming along, making sure things are moving in the right direction and there's no misunderstanding. That's the best you can do if you have no technical skills. That makes perfect sense. And I, I actually, um, when I first started to learn um, how to become a software developer, I was self-taught in PHP. And around less than a year or so after starting to learn how to program while working on a startup, I ended up in an acquihire situation. And I remember very clearly a conversation early on with the founders of the company, one of them asked me what I think about Ruby developers. I had really no idea other than like, Ruby seemed like this cool like community. And I said, well, I don't know. They seem kind of like a bunch of hipsters writing software. I had absolutely <laughs> no idea whatsoever what I was talking about. And Venkat, can you tell me what the predominant language I work in right now is? I think it would be Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's funny that like, you know, there, you can end up in a situation where you have, you're operating on advice from people that, um, you know, seem very technically competent to you as a non-technical person, but you know, it, it was all kind of uh, very biased, like prejudiced answers on my part, and there was really no way for them to tell any different. You know, that's bad on me uh, in retrospect, but you know, it's definitely something to keep in mind for people that are trying to you know have some sort of mentors that like personal preferences can play in uh, more than you you think. Yes, agreed, one hundred percent. Yeah. It's definitely a space where there's a lot of your um, preferences are a function of your experiences. So who you've worked with, the types of languages you like, the types of language you've used, how your past company structured things. It's going to alter the way you think about things. So, and that's why software development is not a super easy thing. And that's why there's a lot of debates around how things can be executed and how things can be done. Because anything that is not like in absolute case better in all different features or all different aspects, if something's not absolutely better, right, in, uh, then there's going to be cost benefits to switching to any other thing. Uh, it's like task management tools, right? So you could build a really, really bad project management product that is worse than, that's like the equivalent of Asana, but worse than Asana on every single feature. Then it's like hard to debate whether or not that's better than Asana or not. But you could build Trello and then you can argue Trello versus Asana and you can see how there's different advantages and disadvantages to each. And that's where you have the personal preference. Right, absolutely. And I think the more time that you spend seeing, as you said, the multiple different ways that you can build a path from A to B successfully, you finally open yourself up to the understanding that, look, like there are multiple ways to do the exact same thing and not necessarily are any of them any better than the other. I think it's fundamentally comes down to whatever works best for your team at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's definitely a bias towards what people are familiar with using. True. Well, Randy, thank you so much again for coming on with us. We really appreciate it. Can you tell us where we can keep up with you online? Sure. Venture Pact, which is V-E-N-T-U-R-E-P-A-C-T dot com. 
is our website. You can reach out to me. My LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash in slash Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, Reyes, R-A-Y-E-S-S. And then Twitter is at Randy Reyes, same spelling. And the email is randy at venturepack.com. So those are the main ways to connect with me. Happy to help in, in any way. Excellent. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at talkingcode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to talkingcode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.